This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing the latest news in the world of business and finance. And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. All right, Sweet Home Chicago. That's exactly where we are. We are here at Schwab Impact 2017 in Chicago. And our next guest, participating a little bit later on in a panel here at uh, the event, it's called Biagnostics, where behavioral finance meets client experience. Let's get more on this from Amar Aguilar. He's a chief investment officer at, of equities and multi-asset strategies at Charles Schwab Investment Management. And I feel like behavioral market trends, all of a sudden, maybe it's because of the Nobel Prize winner in, uh, in economics that we're talking about this again. Why is it relevant? Why is it important? Well, thank you for having me first. Thank you and, for having uh, us. Yeah, no, this is great. Um, great, uh, great conference to be in. And, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting that people talk about a lot about, you know, the Nobel Prize winner, uh, mm -hmm. Richard Taylor, this year. Yeah. But behavioral finance has been around for over 30 years. And it's obviously just the nature of uh, being a human being. Uh, so a lot of what we will discuss later today is, you know, what are the concerns that the clients have just by the nature of how they're biased, how we're wired? Uh, on one hand, there's clients and there's people that are a little more emotional in nature. That's just who, how we were born. And there's other people that tend to overthink these things. And overall, those two things tend to go uh, against each other when it comes down to financial decisions. So uh, our objective is to try to bring tools to advisors so that they can actually then use those tools to help their clients. And, and honestly, advisors have biases too. Right. So that's sort of, sort of a big part of uh, the connection. What has been the hangover from, if any, from the, uh, the 2008 uh, decline in the market and, and, and the effect that it had on so many people's personal wealth because a lot of it was housing related and, and yet we've seen this kind of market off to the races since 2009 almost uninhibited. Yes. Well, there is a lot to be certain about the experiences that people have in the, in the market. Uh, a lot of our experiences, you know, basically trigger those behavioral finances, behavioral biases. You know, overall, when you have a bad experience, you, you know, tend to overreact and then you tend to do certain things. What we observed in 2008 is that the reaction, you know, was uniform across everybody because obviously everybody got, you know, different experiences, but for the most part, it was negative. Right. Um, nowhere to then, hide. Nowhere to hide. Uh, but, you know, generations, the demographics actually change depending on how the market reacted. Baby boomers, by their own nature, tend to be easier to forget the bad experiences. They tend to go went back into the market. Those who are the big drivers of the bull market since then. Um, millennials, Generation X, they're a little more skeptical. They are not as You guys see keen. that. You see Absolutely. that. Absolutely. You know, uh, millennials have had a not the best experiences in equity markets, including the 2008 financial crisis, and therefore they tend to be more risk averse. That it's a little bit counterintuitive. Yeah. Is that a reason why you, you see some of the um, uh, robo advisors, mm -hmm. and the throne robo product, a big one, um, but uh, you look at uh, Betterment and Wealthfront in particular, really focused on millennials, 
maybe trying to sort of maybe they seem to be taking the bet that, that millennials will never get involved in owning individual equities, for example. Well, you know, the, the, the nature of the robo advisor is a function of where we are technology wise. And I think a lot of that is you're trying to facilitate, you know, the tools that, you know, clients, you know, want because, you know, robo advisors target, you know, millennials obviously will be naturally inclined to use technology more, but also baby boomers can benefit from that too. And a lot of that is related to the discipline related to how you rebalance, how you do tax harvesting, how you actually uh, set your goals and your outcomes, which is a lot of how the financial uh, system has evolved. How is data, machine learning, able to kind of maybe filter out some of the biases that you talked about earlier, uh, and certainly behavioral biases? Yes, uh, great question. Um, well, they, there's two, in, in the uh, theory of behavioral finance, there's two types of biases. One that is more emotional driven, and then there's nothing you can do with that. You know, you can throw <laughs> as many- is what it is. As many data as you want. <laughs> you are wired that way, and you're gonna react that way, and it's almost the way, like if you root for a team on a sport, you're always going to be there. And there's no data that convince you otherwise. You know, we're in Chicago. Think of the Cubs. A hundred <laughs> years before winning the World Series. So believe me, there were fans that waited that long. Uh, the emotional bias was hard to overcome, no matter how much data. The cognitive biases, those are the ones that the advisors have more ability to actually work with. Those are the ones that use our frontal cortex to try to make rational decisions. That's where we convince ourselves for certain things. Again, it could be against us, but you convince yourself about a certain decision. That's what financial data helps. That's what artificial intelligence, that's what a lot of the information that financial advisors have can actually help in those cognitive biases in a better way for the client. It's fascinating, uh, and 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 I, I suppose part of the job is just recognizing that, helping the helping the financial advisor recognize what which, which one of those two biases they're dealing with. Exactly, and you know the title that we have in our discussion, as well as the tools that we use, is precisely diagnostics, which is mm -hmm. how to use certain tools to diagnose how much of emotional bias or uh, cognitive biases your client has or your own you know, practice may actually have and then trying to find a solution that is trying to address those behavioral biases to get a better outcome for the client. Great way too to assess you know, a different client, how much risk that they're willing to take, how much risk they're comfortable with. You can really use it in a lot of different ways. Exactly. You know, we, the way we think about it is to say is what client wants versus what they need yes. and make that trade off. Great spending some time with you. Thank you. Thank you. Biagnostics. Biagnostics. Like it's it. new. I know. We'll be working with that one. Omar Aguilar, he's Chief Investment Officer of Equities and Multi-Asset Strategies at Charles Schwab Investment Management, right here at the Schwab Impact 2017 event in Chicago. So much to talk about and so much facing investors at this point. Our next guest, uh, he's really, a, I feel like he's a family friend of Bloomberg. Uh, he was part of a, a keynote yesterday at Schwab Impact 2017 here in Chicago. It was entitled Politics, the Markets, and Your Clients. Let's get some thoughts. Uh, Greg Vallier back with us, uh, Chief Global Strategist for Horizon Investments, uh, based in Washington but on site here in Chicago. Nice to have you here in person. Great to see you guys. Tell me about this conversation because I do feel like the world, not just the United States, but globally, we're driven by politics. What did you guys discuss? Well, we discussed what could go wrong. I don't <laughs> think the market is going to go straight up forever to the sky, and there are some things to worry about. I don't think the tax cut is a slam dunk. There's some obstacles coming, including some today. Budget deficits soaring. Trade protectionism is coming back. We've got both political parties in some chaos. And lest we forget, there's still geopolitical issues to worry about. You mentioned tax reform, and you and I were chatting before we got going, and you said they threw in health care. Yeah. 
I mean, here they were poised for a victory. We're going to get the House tomorrow passing the bill on the floor. What an accomplishment before Thanksgiving. So what do they do? They get hubristic, one of my favorite words, <laughs> and, and decide to throw in an Obamacare provision, which I think endangers the whole process, could delay the whole process. I'm not sure the votes are there in the Senate to get this done. Yeah, it's interesting. So the, the Obamacare provision, uh, is, is it enough? I mean, could this not, could that keep this from passing? Because the Republicans have been pretty um, uh, tight-ranked about uh, getting this. I, I getting don't rid of it. know if McConnell has the votes. I don't. I, 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 I would assume yes. That Susan Collins is probably a no. Murkowski of Alaska is a no. You just need one more no, and it goes down. And who knows who's going to be the senator from Alabama? Right. Uh, who knows what Rand Paul's going to do? So, it, in, by putting this new provision on the bill, I think it was a reckless move that could. Uh, imperil the entire tax cut. What do investors care most about when it comes to the political environment? Oh, the tax bill. Unquestionably. It's the tax bill. I I think by lowering the corporate rates by this much, it's a huge story for the small cap stocks. Mm -hmm. Most of the small cap stocks pay about 35%. So we're going to go from 35 down to 20, 22, 23. That's a very big deal. Right. We've seen that reaction in the market among those small cap names big time. Yep. But the effect on a lot of individuals, individuals in states like, oh, you know, uh, let's say New York, New, New Jersey, Jersey yeah. California. Massachusetts, California, yeah. you know, the places I live, for example, in California and New yeah. York, yeah. Uh, that's not going to be a positive impact on uh, those taxpayers. It's not going to be a bunch of a cut for them. Not much. And I think one of the key players and least appreciated players in this whole debate has been uh, Steve Bannon. And Bannon and the right-wing populace has aligned with Bernie Sanders and the left-wing populace in saying, we don't want big tax cuts for the wealthy, for you guys in California and New York. So I think that the tax cuts for the wealthy will get scaled back even more. I think the top rate stays at 39.6%. It doesn't come down. And, and But by eliminating those, those uh, deductions for other taxes paid, property taxes maybe, uh, state taxes and, and local taxes, looks like those are also going to, that's, that's going to remain as part of this bill. At the best, probably people like you guys will wind up as a net wash, maybe a slight tax cut. But this is not the greatest thing since sliced bread. I mean, Trump has portrayed this as a huge tax cut for everyone. I think for corporations, yes, indeed, it's a big, big deal. For individuals, it's a mixed bag. And they may not last. They're talking yes. about it just for a certain portion so that they can get in, uh, right. is it the bird provision? Yes, so they can, they can make all the numbers fit, Right. but so therefore they're going to sunset, another Washington word, they're going to sunset <laughs> the bill after a few years and we'll have to readdress the whole thing all over again. You know what I love talking about, someone like you, and uh, you know, you've seen a lot of different cycles in Washington. This cycle will mean what historically? Well, a real repudiation of the establishment. I mean, that continues. I think that we'll look back at this period where, to be fair, the business climate is more favorable under Trump. We had eight years of an adversarial relationship between the Obama administration and business. The climate has changed. So I think from that standpoint, it's a plus. It's one of the reasons why the stock market has gone up. I'd give Janet Yellen a little credit also. But no, this, this is a real sea change. But I have to look back at Virginia a week or so ago. Those exit polls in Virginia show me that there is real dissent among suburban women. I think the Republicans got a, a real shot 
indicating that they could lose a lot of House seats in 2018. Does the system change, though, dramatically, Greg, going forward? Like, I think we all feel like we need a reboot in terms of yeah. our political system. Does anything change as long as there's so much money in Washington in terms of lobbying efforts and so on? Uh, the, the change is always glacial in Washington. It's like turning around an ocean liner. It doesn't come very quickly. And some uh, of that's good. So that's good. Checks and balances. Yeah. You know, that's a good thing. But but I do think that the current climate is going to lead to a counter-reaction. The problem for the Democrats is that most of their leaders, most of their likely candidates in 2020 are elderly. You know, Bernie Sanders is 76, Biden's turning 75 next week, Jerry Brown is 79, he's talking about running. I'm thinking, where's Mike Dukakis and Walter Mondale? <laughs> maybe, they'll, maybe they'll decide to run. The party really needs some fresh blood, and I don't see a lot of it right now. Is that why there's such excitement about Kamala Harris? Who's, yes. Who's been in the Senate? from the blink of an eye. She's told people I know that she's going to use Barack Obama as the template. She'll just serve for a couple years and she's running and she'll have a lot of money from Silicon Valley. She'll have a lot of money from Hollywood. Will it make a difference? A younger voice sure. generation? Sure. I mean, Barack I, Obama was a younger generation. Yeah, I, 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 th I think it will. I think at the end of the day, for your listeners, people who follow the markets, you know, it's earnings. It's the Fed, it's interest rates, I mean, there's some, some of the basic fundamentals, but at the margin, I, I do think it, it makes a difference. And I think that the markets are starting to tire of, uh, of Trump, and I think he's got to worry about 18 and 20. Um, as we see that, you know, the, you mentioned the, the election in Virginia and the, and the polling afterwards. Mm -hmm. a, lo a lot of the polling show that health care was a top concern. Yes. But I can't tell which way that, that slices. Uh, when, when, they, when they say health care, it means they want to keep Obamacare, they don't want to keep it, they want to get rid of Obamacare. You can sense a, a shift here, a pendulum shift toward a more activist government role in health care. What a, what a surprise after all the rhetoric we've heard against Obamacare. So I think Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren will have a litmus test for any Democrat running in 2018. You would better support a single-payer national health insurance plan. That's now becoming a bit more popular. That's so why, why would the Republicans be adding this to the tax exactly. bill this week? I mean, they, <laughs> exactly. they got the message last right. week. We're, we're the policy advisors. The, the optics are terrible here. Of like, You're going to throw people off health insurance. Premiums are going to go up. Oh, and we're going to have a little extra money because of this to give us some more Deep tax corporate cuts. Ta corporate taxes. And yeah. you know, one, one other point I'd make really quickly. You could make a case that while tax reform is needed, especially how we tax companies internationally, do we really need a tax cut that's going to cost a trillion and a half dollars when you've got GDP growing at three, when you've got unemployment at four? I'm not sure we need a big tax cut. Uh, we, we, and it's, it's clear what we do. We do need health care. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, 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 and the popularity of that program is, is, is starting to show itself. We need, we need tax reform. We'll get something. I think by the end of the winter we'll get something. But this new development in the last 24 hours could slow this down. Not a good story for the markets. Love talking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much. Great to have you here. Yeah, Greg Vellier, Chief Global Strategist for Horizon Investments and friend of the show, friend of Bloomberg. Glad to have you. Yes, indeed. Great. Unstoppable bull market, that's for sure. Lizanne Saunders joins us right now, Chief Investment Strategist for Charles Schwab uh, here in Chicago at the uh, Schwab Impact 2017 conference. Um, glad to see you. Um, glad to be here. Thank this you. Is a, this, let's talk about this conference just a little bit first. Who comes to this event? It's, it's supposedly the largest gathering of, of money managers or of uh, financial advisors in the world. So there's well over 2,000 advisors, but that's not uh, representative of the entire audience. So leaving aside overhead like me. 
as an employee, but also a, a speaker, then we have many of the people that you see around here at the booths, uh, so sponsors and fund companies, uh, big media presence. Thank you, Bloomberg Radio, for joining us here. Thank you. And, uh, and event staff. And uh, we, we really put on a good event. I often joke that we're the largest in our business in financial services, but I think one of our core competencies is actually our events <laughs> and the staff behind it. Well, nice to hear. And I said to you when you came over, I said, so tell me, like, kind of what's the mood of the event? Like, what are people talking about? And I thought it was interesting what you said. Normally, especially in, in sort of tumultuous market periods, that's what the advisors want to talk about, what's going on in the mm. markets. But they seem to be more interested in talking about their business and the enthusiasm around the business of the registered investment advisor space and the opportunities uh, there for them and their growth. And um, that's kind of a neat thing. So there's a lot of enthusiasm, but it's it's the contrarian in me doesn't worry about it because it's not just talking about what the market has been doing, but about their own business. Yeah. And and is, is it a growing business? I mean, are lots more people getting into this industry? Uh, a lot more people are getting into it. There's the trend to breakaway brokers from some of the bigger wirehouses. There's a lot of interest um, throughout the university system, and we have a lot of students here. I increasingly talk to young people who want to go into this business broadly, even specifics like financial planning. So I think enthusiasm from the youth is really fabulous because a lot of younger folks, their only experience with this business, with markets, was the financial crisis and the tech bus prior to it and the sort of the souring of opinions on what we represent and it's kind of a rigged game. And it's nice to see that we may be turning the corner there and that young people actually view this industry as one of opportunity and fun and interest and and excitement. Liz, do you feel like that we need to have those younger players in the industry in order to bring in younger investors? Uh, Absolutely. Uh, I think we need more diversity, certainly in age. I think we need more gender diversity. Um, I'm, I'm biased, obviously, but... There's now more money in this country controlled by women than men. Um, We crossed that chasm about a year ago. I think women like to work with other women. I think young people like to work with other young people. So I I do think there are huge opportunities, and I think there's a need for kind of the next generation. When you say more money controlled by women, what do you mean? As advisors or just earning? Uh, Of of the households in the United States, there's now a greater amount of the wealth in the United States that is controlled by women. So women live longer, they're attaining higher degrees of education, more of them are in the workforce. Um, and I think we're now somewhere in the you know 51% of, of the U.S. wallet, if you want to right. call it that. I heard Larry Fink from BlackRock refer to it as that, mm. is now controlled by women. So when you look at this this um, this interest uh, from all kinds of people about getting into this business, what does it tell you about the, the sentiment around this bull market and the notion that it might uh, continue? I think it's more optimism around what the industry has to offer and opportunities for young people, more so than it is, let me just chase a bull market into the industry. So I think it's really organic what has people attracted to this, understanding the generational uh, and um, demographic need for broader financial planning and a more holistic look at at, um, individuals and how they invest and 
holistic in the sense that it's not just about opening a brokerage account and trading stocks, but a broader approach to financial planning and estate planning. It's gotten much, much more complicated. We all know that. Yeah. And people need help figuring it out. It's funny that you say that because I was recently talking with the CEO of a, of a company, a whole different industry, but that word holistic, like it's applying to almost every industry in terms of how you approach either new consumers or new yep. users of any product. Um, having said that, because we're going to have companies that aren't like my dad who grew up and then ended up having a pension and investments and I so many different things in retirement, yeah. that it's now up to everybody else to kind of get it together. You took the words right out of my mouth. I think there is this realization that you talk to a lot of young people and they say, look, we know we're on our own. There isn't that reliance on traditional defined benefit plans. And even if they did still exist en masse, demographics these days, people don't stay at one company for their entire 40-year career. Right. We're really changing the whole way we think about work and saving and investing. And I think we do put the onus, younger people in particular, put the onus more on themselves because they probably rightly so aren't relying on the government to right. do it for them. They don't view Social Security as mm -hmm. their eventual retirement nest egg. So they're getting smart about it. And, and, you're, and you're seeing that, and Schwab's seeing that in the business. Uh, no question about it. Yep. It's interesting, too. Uh, is there a, do you think there's a better, final question, sense of financial literacy among people in this country? Just got about 20 seconds. Um, yes, but there needs to be more. And, and as you probably know, that is our mission at Schwab is, is financial literacy and financial start education. With kindergartners. I really believe They should this. absolutely be mandated in high school. I call it life economics. Yeah. We used to have home economics. How about life right. economics? The right. basics. I think I a lot of people on Wall Street are like kindergartners. I'm not going to go there. I just think financial so education. Is company excluded, I hope. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Open mouth. Insert foot. <laughs> exactly. No, I'm, I'm totally with you on this. Um, nice to talk to you. Right back at you. Thank you so much. Thanks for being here. Lizanne Saunders of Charles Schwab. This is Bloomberg Radio. Together, ETFs have taken in more than $700 billion over the past three years. And as of the beginning of this year, that's that stat, but uh, billions more this year. Our next guest says ETFs could be headed for exponential growth. Here to talk a little bit about that, Heather Fisher. She is vice president of ETF and mutual fund platforms at Charles Schwab, on site with us at the Schwab Impact 2017 event in Chicago. Welcome to Bloomberg Radio. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. You know, I said before we got going, I said, uh, I feel like every week, every day, there's a new ETF. Um, what do you make of that kind of growth? It certainly has been dramatic. Uh, so we have, as of end of Q3, $380 billion in assets under management at Schwab and ETFs. It's uh, a lot. It's a lot. And flows this year have been $35 billion, which is twice the amount that we saw last year. So ETFs just grow and grow and grow in popularity. All kinds of ETFs are people interested? Is it certain types? Uh, it's certainly uh, focused on the core, I'd say, kind of mm -hmm. the mark classic, market cap weighted. That's where we see the most volume and the most growth. But it is across the board. Uh, and I think we see continued popularity, continued familiarity, and, and an increase in knowledge and understanding of ETFs that together combine fuels some of that growth. Um, there have been so many created, uh, but it seems like a lot of the trading is actually concentrated on just a, a few. Um, is, has there been too much creation? Is there a problem with that? You know, that's a question that we ask. We do an ETF investor study every year. We asked that a year or two ago. Is there too many? Is it just right? Are you looking for more? Uh, and, and investors actually said they're looking for more. I don't think they're looking for a lot more, because to your point, we certainly have many. But 
I, I think investors expect us as an industry to keep an eye on the economy, the market, the world, and how it's changing and making sure that we have uh, investing vehicles that meet those needs. That said, it does need to be done in a careful, thoughtful way uh, and to truly actually meet a need versus just let's throw some spaghetti against the wall and see what ETF sticks. Heather, if you break down kind of the demographic flows into ETFs, do we find anything interesting? Yeah, I'd say, again, with the study that we do, the demographic that's really leading the charge is millennials. Uh, you take a look at any question we ask about ETFs, and they pretty much double down. Uh, so likelihood to view ETFs as their investment vehicle of choice, 56% uh, of millennials say that. It's about 44% for Gen X. Because? Is it fees? Cost or lack thereof? Cost definitely plays a factor. Cost yeah. is absolutely important to them. It's important to all clients, but it's something they expect. They expect that low cost. They expect that transparency. And, and frankly, you know, ETFs are roughly 20 years old or so. Uh, so they've been around from the start for millennials, from the start of their investing career. You're saying career. ETFs themselves are millennials? Uh, <laughs> Well, I, I think millennials are a little, little bit older. Little, uh, <laughs> ETFs themselves have really been around. Have, they have been around for two decades already. Mm -hmm. What's right. changed about them? Uh, well, I think the proliferation, the growth of the number and type and style of ETFs is certainly a big factor. Uh, I think that awareness and education with the investing public has as well. So it used to be everybody knew what a mutual fund was. That's what you invested in in your 401k. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're starting to see more and more that that's becoming the pattern with ETFs as well. People know them, people understand them, and their knowledge about those as an investment vehicle is increasing. Uh, do you, do you uh, query of millennials about sort of portfolio construction or how big a part of, the, of their portfolios ETFs might be? You know, it's interesting. Uh, we ask every year kind of what percentage of your portfolio is in ETFs. Uh, and I don't have the stats for millennials specifically, but when we started this study five years ago, uh, the answer was 16% on average. This year, it's 27%. And when we ask people to say, well, what do you think it'll be in five years? They're forecasting 33%. So it's steady growth across demographics, actually. What kinds of ETFs do you think are seeing some interesting growth? Or more growth. Uh, yeah, certainly we're seeing it with market cap, but I think smart beta has been an interesting trend as well. Oh my God, <laughs> smart beta. <laughs> Have you heard that term before? Just a little. <laughs> Um, the other one that I'd, I'd call out, actually, is socially is responsible. Is anybody doing stupid beta? I'm just asking. Because <laughs> that would be something. Below average Sorry. <laughs> no, but go ahead. Forgive yeah. me. No, no, not at all. Um, the, it has seen some strong growth. And the other area that hasn't yet, but I think we might see in the next couple of years, uh, is socially responsible. So I'm hearing a lot of people talk about it. It's not just something nice to have in your portfolio anymore. It's actually significant returns, and it's becoming more and more important to investors. It, it absolutely is. And again, definitely with millennials, definitely yeah. with women. And that's where we see some strong investing trends. And, and people are expecting that they can have both. They can have uh, successful investment, successful performance and returns, and invest in a way that aligns with their values. Is there socially responsible, is there product out there in the socially responsible space for ETFs? There is actually. There's several. Mm -hmm. um, and there, it's, it's a small number right now, but it is growing. Um, and a lot of the providers that we have on our platform overall and on our commission-free ETF OneSource platform have uh, some socially responsible products. When you look at the industry, do you ultimately see, you and I were talking before we got going too, about you know mutual funds have been around for, I don't know, three decades, four decades. Do you ultimately see ETFs replacing mutual funds? We've got about 25 seconds. Yeah, I don't know if it's a replacement. I, mean, I think when we talk about it, the industry at large, it's not mutual fund or ETF. It's not active or passive. It's kind of what's the right blend and what's the right blend for an individual given client. I think most of us feel there's probably a role for both in mm -hmm. most folks' portfolio 
portfolios. Um, but we want to start with the client need uh, first, always uh, at Schwab. And I think what we're trying to do is do a better, better job of educating consumers on the difference and when to use what. Yeah, I think education's a big deal. We were just talking about this earlier with Lizanne Saunders. Absolutely. Got to start early. Um, nice to have you here. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Heather Fisher, she's VP of ETF and Mutual Fund Platforms at Charles Schwab & Company. This is Bloomberg Radio. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets with Carol Messer and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed, everybody. Time for a look at your movers and shakers, winners and losers on Wall Street on this Tuesday, uh, Wednesday, forgive me. Carol Master along with Corey Johnson. Let me kick it off with the S&P 500. 131 names in the index higher today, 372 lower, three unchanged, which I think is kind of interesting, Corey, because we started the day with the overall markets much lower. We bounced off their lows, so we, we ended the day uh, much more optimistic, if you will, versus the open. But nonetheless, if you look at the breadth of the market, it was certainly a much more you know, downward trend, if you will. One of the stocks on a downward trend, Accorda Therapeutics, mm. is a biotech company that's got a, a handful of neurological uh, 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 treatments uh, based in Ardley, New York. Uh, stock fell 40% today. Uh, to give it, it's got an, uh, today it has now an, uh, about an $800 million valuation. That 40% plunge was after news that uh, 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 a number of patients died in final stage studies of a treatment for Parkinson's disease. Um, uh, the company had come back from earlier setbacks, but seven patients in this trial developed an infection uh, called sepsis. Five of them died from this sepsis. And uh, of, of the seven uh, who got it, four developed a condition where the infection fighting white blood cells disappeared from their body, which companies said could be related to the drug, uh, and as a result, uh, stock collapsing, uh, and they're going to um, stop adding new patients to this trial. All right, that's pretty rough. Hey, I want to mention Target again, uh, if I may. I know Charlie mentioned it, but uh, the stock was the number one decliner in the S&P 500 today. Well-known retailer, of course. Uh, down 9.9%, down almost $6 a share to 54.16 a share. Target shares are down 25% uh, so far in 2017, just among the many retailers kind of having a tough time uh, in this environment. Now, Target's price war with Walmart stores taking a toll. That's our story on the Bloomberg. Target posted a disappointing outlook today, in part because of investments made to uh, lower prices, boost wages, and develop new brands. And that set the stock down uh, at its lows. It was down uh, 10%, uh, closing, as I mentioned, down 9.9%. So it's the biggest decliner in the S&P. Target CEO, though, cutting prices, remodeling more than 1,000 locations, opening dozens of smaller stores in cities on, and on uh, college campuses, uh, all part of a $7 billion multi-year plan to get the company and the retailer back on more solid footing. But, uh, you know, you can't be slow in this uh, process because there's somebody else, another uh, retailer, getting ready to kind of take your market share. Uh, last one, I'll give you uh, um, uh, Alaska Air, uh, upgraded a strong buy uh, by Raymond James. They actually seem to move the stock about 4%, almost 5% up today in a down day in the market, uh, uh, suggesting that over the next couple of quarters, uh, the, the uh, revenue and earnings outlook could be difficult. But after that, he sees benefits from the merger uh, with Virgin America um, and uh, uh, with Virgin America uh, acquisition taking place at the end of this year, one that I'm not too thrilled about. No, I oh, know. They're screwing things up 
being time already. Maybe this analyst hasn't seen it yet. All right. Another time. Another I'll time. Vent. This will be another discussion, no doubt about it. All right, let's get to the volatility index report. And the VIX in the Wednesday session up 13.6%. Whoa, I hadn't looked at the VIX today. I looked at it this morning. It was, it was like crazy. What did it end up Up 13.6%, yeah. closing at 13.7%. It was up over 14 at a certain point. And, and, and we've had nine days in a row now in the VIX. Remember we, we interviewed someone who said just always sell the VIX? It always bounces, it always falls after rallies? That's yeah, nine. Exactly. Nine days in a row. Cisco earnings crossing the Bloomberg terminal as we speak. Second quarter revenue uh, uh, said to be 1% to 3% higher versus an estimate of about a 0.94% gain. As for the first quarter, quick check on that quarter, the last quarter. Uh, first quarter adjusted EPS, 61 cents a share, a penny better than Wall Street was forecasting. First quarter revenue, $12.1 billion. That's in line with forecast. But again, it looks like their outlook, Corey, in terms of uh, revenue growth, uh, a little bit more optimistic than what Wall Street was expecting. Second, I understand this company is seeing declining revenues in uh, six quarters in a row for 18 months. So the notion that they're going to see a gain next quarter That's is, different, is a very, right? uh, it's a big change. Stock is up 3.2% in the after hours. All right, let's uh, get to uh, Dave Wilson. He's got a couple things for us, including his stock and chart of the day. Our Bloomberg Stocks columnist back at uh, New York headquarters for Bloomberg in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Dave, you want to start with your stock or um, chart? Wherever you want. Well, let's go with the chart. I mean, uh, it's an interesting sort of look at the relationship between the S&P 500 and the main industry groups. And it's something that uh, Nicholas Colas, the co-founder of Datatrek Research, did in a report the other day. And what you see when you go through them, and he did it with exchange-traded funds, specifically uh, the select sector spider exchange-traded funds, at least that's what my chart does, uh, you find out that the average correlation on a 30-day basis, so it's a, it's a way to track how closely uh, industry groups are, are mirroring the S&P 500. That correlation at the end of last month was the lowest since at least 2009, and it's just as low at this point. I mean, outside of technology stocks, most of the industry groups just aren't tracking the S&P 500. And what that means is that if you're an active money manager, you've got more opportunity than you had in some time to really beat the market. And that's his point. Mm. If you want to know more, folks, send me an email. I will get you the chart, the explanation that goes with it. And everything I do going forward, the email address is dwilson at bloomberg.net. That's dwilson at bloomberg.net. That's an interesting chart. What do you got for stock of the day? I've got Maycom Technology Solutions Holdings. It looks like the latest example of cockroach theory at work. The whole idea that you know, if you get one piece of bad news on a company, often others follow. Like if you see one cockroach in the kitchen, you'd know there's more hiding somewhere. Maycom is a communications chip maker whose ticker is MTSI. Company shares fell after its first three earnings reports for fiscal 2017, which ended in September. Maycom's fourth quarter figures came out late yesterday, and they once again were disappointing. Revenue in particular, which trailed analyst average estimate of Bloomberg survey by the widest margin in more than three years. And this cockroach led to an unprecedented event. For the first time since Maycom went public in March 2012, the stock received a sell recommendation. Bank of America Merrill Lynch did the deed, cutting its rating to underperform from neutral. All this sent Maycom's shares to a loss of 18% on the day. And uh, for the year, it's now down 35%. And you're looking at the first annual decline for this stock after four years of gains in the stock more than tripling along the way. 
Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV. 